he's going to defend himself by looking back at the Old Testament. And when you see the phrase covenant of grace, I understand the covenant of grace to be the gospel. And perhaps I'll put an in, insert in the bulletin one of these days. Um, Herman Bavink believed it was the gospel. Louis Burkhoff's uh, CRC. Um, Charles Hodge believed it was the gospel. Christopher Love, English Puritan. Perhaps I'll it, just for ease of understanding. But Acts of um, Acts seven. It's a lengthy passage. I'll just take from verse 1. Hear God's holy word. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brothers and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran, and from there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, says God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. Gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his affliction and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, He made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. And when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him. Seventy-five persons in all. Jacob went down to Egypt and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb where Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the tombs sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And it was he that took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. And it was at this time that Moses was born. He was lovely in the sight of God. He was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power and words indeed. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brothers, the sons of Israel. When he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian He supposed that his brothers understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. 
when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. As he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groans. I've come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you ruler and judge, is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and deliverer, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, in the wilderness forty years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the work of their hands. God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Molech and the star of the god Ramphah, the images which you have made to worship. I will also remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directing him to make it according to the pattern which you had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked him that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hands which made all these things? Let's end there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you so love the world, Lord, that you sent your Son to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What a glorious gospel it is, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the Bible in English. Thank you for the ability to see and the ability to hear, the ability to read. And Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit that has taken out our stony hearts and given us a heart of flesh, given us a new spirit to hear the law's loud thunder and to hear that thunder being quenched by the blood of the Lamb. Give us, Almighty God, increased measures of faith that we would increasingly hate our sin and love our sin-bearer, Jesus Christ. Cause us to love people so much that we would not even count our life dear as we see our lives as a divine opportunity to testify of the goodness of Christ. Use us, Lord, for the extension of your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's a very lengthy passage, as I usually ordinarily don't read that large of a passage, but it's a unit. I would argue perhaps the entire chapter could be taken as a 
as a, a single standalone sermon, uh, not to reject what I said last week. I think it was Martin Luther's commentary on this. When he came to this particular passage, he says there doesn't, there isn't really a need to make comments. He considered it to be self-explanatory. There are other commentators that do take the time to unpack what, what they see here, but Luther wasn't one of them. He just thought it was evident that Stephen was using this particular text, really giving an overview of redemptive history to prove to the Sanhedrin, which he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, that he's not a heretic, that he's not a Bible denier, that he's not a Moses denier, that he's not a God denier. Uh, he, in fact, stands in the tradition of the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets. So this is what our passage represents. I'm going to just kind of take this large cha- chapter, and I want to look at some more salient points, some of the things I think that, that we sh- should, should learn. Um, this is, as I mentioned, the general doctrine, the general teaching of this ch- text is Stephen's defense against the charges that have been brought against him. You remember in chapter chapter 6, and then here in chapter 7, the high priest begins, what do you say to these things? And he means to these charges. And this is, this is Stephen's lengthy answer. And we know at the end of the chapter, he'll, he'll be stoned to death as the first New Testament martyr. And when I come back to the pulpit, Lord willing, on the 16th, I'm going to take the very end of chapter 7 and, and, and put it in with the first four voice, verses of uh, chapter 8, dealing with the death of um, Stephen, the persecution of the church, and what God does by that. So this is Stephen's defense against the, the religious charges brought against him. And in particular, it's his use of the Old Testament. And obviously, it's his use of the Old Testament because we don't have a great many of the New Testament books, I think, completed by this particular time. And so he's using the Old Testament, he's using the Old Testament, the Bible, as it were, to say, I am I'm not a heretic. I'm not anti-Bible. I'm not anti-God. Here is my defense, the Bible. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. That's what he's doing. And there is a man that I like. I don't like everything about him, um, but I do like a great bit about him. His name is John Stott. He's an Anglican. He has some things that I would differ with him. He interacts with this passage on um, uh, John Bernard Shaw's critique. And Bernard Shaw was a... um, was a uh, John Bernard Shaw was an Irish poet and playwright, and when Shaw came to this passage and he looked at it, he said something like this: He said this speech was a rambling and incoherent account given by an intolerable youth that was boring his older and more learned audience with a history that they knew knew. Um, Uh, all too well. Beloved, John Bernard Shaw was was incorrect. This is not a rambling, incoherent uh, presentation of redemptive history. This is a very good um, presentation of redemptive history. And what his critique, and Stott interacts with that critique, what his critique shows us is that these particular Old Testament judges who are standing as judge over um, Old Testament, you understand what I'm meaning, the, 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 the crux of the epic from the old to the new. But these judges reveal that they don't know the Bible rightly. They don't know their Old Testament redemptive history rightly. And why do I say that? 
If you cannot find Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, you don't know the, the Old Testament. You don't know the Old Testament. The, but this is what Stephen's defense is built upon. Stephen is saying, I can find Christ from Abraham, from Moses, from David, and Solomon, Joseph, patriarchs, everyone, he's saying, is going to point the people of God, me, to Jesus. That's why I preach Jesus. So when Shaw says, this is just rambling, and, and clearly, clearly these particular judges against Stephen, they don't know the scriptures rightly. I'm going to read for you a couple of places, Jesus Christ, one, and the Apostle Peter, the other, that tell us the Old Testament teaches the coming Jesus Christ. Jesus says on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24, there's a couple of fellows that are dejected after the death of Jesus. Now, he's risen from the dead, and they are miraculously prevented from recognizing that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so there's going to be this discourse from Christ to these two disciples. And they're dejected. And they say to Jesus Christ, well, we thought Jesus was the Christ. And this is his response. He says, Jesus says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And this is key. This is what Stephen is doing. This is what Christ says. Then beginning with Moses, that means the first five books of the Bible, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So I would say from Moses to Malachi, from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Jesus says the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus as the Christ. He says the very same thing in John chapter 5. And the apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this about the Old Testament prophets, what they were preaching. They're preaching Jesus. This is what the new... We read the, we read the Old Testament through the lenses of the New Testament. And so the, the, the uh, martyr Stephen is looking at the Old Testament through his Christological lenses and says, that's preaching what I'm preaching. I'm not a heretic. I stand in the line of Moses and David and so on. The Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 1. As to this salvation, salvation in Jesus, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They're studying the scriptures seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them. That's why we read from our secondary standard. Christ didn't just come on the scene as it were um, in his incarnation. Um, certainly he, he became incarnate, but his person is, is eternal. And, and the benefits of his, of his incarnation and his death are actually transferred back in time to these people as well. Christ is what we're finding here the key to the entire Bible. If you cannot find Christ in the Bible, you don't know the Bible. I know I've criticized some, there's a particular fellow, he's a Jewish fellow, he's a conservative political Jewish fellow, and he has a commentary on the the Ten Commandments. I would not get it. Um, If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you don't know Jesus as the Christ, the Bible says a veil lies over your heart. Jesus is the key. Christ is the key to the whole Bible. So if if you're looking at the Bible and you can't see what Stephen is telling these men, it points to Christ, Christ, then you do not know the Bible rightly. And I'm not just picking on that fellow. 
um, when I was in a PCA church in Tallahassee, they invited a Jewish rabbi to come in, not a Christian Jewish rabbi, but a Jewish rabbi to come in and teach us how to do the Passover. And I was a carpet cleaner. I wasn't a minister. I was a carpet cleaner. But I read the Bible. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus is our Passover. We celebrate the, the Passover in Jesus. So when, when John says, Behold the, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, he, he, he is the, he's the anti-type of those types. And my point with that is just this. That man doesn't know that Jesus is the Passover. And therefore he has no business standing in a Christian pulpit teaching anybody, anybody about anything because a veil lies over his heart. Does that make sense? And so Stephen is using the Old Testament, saying the Old Testament teaches Jesus Christ. I'm in line with Moses and the prophets and, and so on. Christ says the same. Um, the Apostle Peter says the same. So to see, to read the Bible without finding Christ in it, I would argue it testifies of spiritual deadness and certainly blindness. And so what we learn when these judges, who are the elders of the land, they cannot find what Stephen is presenting. They don't take his defense. They're going to kill him for it. They reject what he says. So he keeps saying, the Bible says, the Bible says, David says, Moses says, Joseph's a type of Christ. When he says all of these things, at the very end of this chapter, the Sanhedrin, being led by the high priest, is going to say, we don't think so. Now, he's, he's correct. He's accurate. But they reject it. By which we learn something. Our brother's teaching on spiritual maturity, Christian maturity for the Sunday school. And he said something I thought was insightful. Age doesn't mean maturity. You, you can be 95 years old as a Christian, and you could be a spiritual midget. You could be a spiritual infant. I'm not, I'm not picking on anybody, but that's just the facts. And so we have men that are elders, they're rulers, they're leaders, and they can't find Christ in the Bible. And they're actually going to kill the servant of Christ when he does a survey of redemptive history. And he's correct, by which we learn something. And I'm not arguing that we shouldn't stand rise in the presence of the aged. aged. I'm just going to bring that out in the body of the sermon. But, but age is not the same thing as saving faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, office is not the same thing as saving faith in Jesus Christ. And even learning. These guys are the academics of their day. And I'm not against the academy. I think it's very necessary for the ministry. And so, but we learn that those things are not the same thing as simple, spirit-wrought, God-gifted faith. The Bible says that God gives to many lowly, poor people people without the station, people without the learning, he makes them rich in faith. Um, and so we, we see that these people, though they're the doctors of the household of faith, they don't have faith. This is not so that we would look askance at the visible church. I'm not, that's not my purpose. My purpose is to see that these leaders of the visible household of faith, they don't have any faith. Now, Shaw's criticism that Stephen was just rambling and he was just a bore. He was boring these older, wiser uh, uh, leaders in Israel. I, this is just me. My father used to have a saying, um, when your ox is being gored, when your ox is being gored, are you familiar with that kind of, of phrase, when your ox is being gored? And what he meant was, if your ox is being gored, you take things way differently. 
When I'm sitting back eating Chinese food or going on vacation, watching you get your ox gourd, oh, things are a little bit different. Are they not? So Shaw, I think, if he were in Stephen's position, he wouldn't think his defense is so silly. What Stephen is doing is he is on trial for his what? His life. He knows that these people killed his Christ, and he knows what's going to happen at the end of his defense. He's going to die. Because Jesus has told them, I'm going to send you out as lambs in front of wolves and they're going to lock you up. They're going to stone you. They're going to kill many of you. But stay faithful even unto death because I've given you a crown of life. He knows what's going on. And beloved, this is not, and this is where I think Shaw gets it wrong, this is not just some interesting theological debate that people have that they're going to argue Bible perhaps pleasantly or perhaps unpleasantly and then the most that's going to happen is someone's going to leave angry or both parties are going to leave angry as we often do when we're sharing the bible or talking theology um, we show how much we love god and love people by leaving angry and speaking angrily that's not going to happen here this guy's on trial for his life and the crimes that he's being accused of biblically leviticus chapter 24 is death penalty this is death penalty. And this is not lift weights for the next 50 years and get a, get a law degree on the government's expense in prison. It's not that. If he gets determined as guilty, and he's going to be determined as guilty, he's going to die at the very end of the trial. They're going to pick up stones and kill him at the end of the trial. He knows that. And I would argue the way that we present Christ in our hope and life and death when we come to dying time is going to be radically different to the person that, that is, thinks that he's not at dying time. And Stephen knows he's come to the end of his life, and he's testifying even at the very end of his life. That's what's going on. Beloved, don't mistake uh, intellectual giftedness or skill for simple faith. As I mentioned, without saving faith, which these men represent, they don't have saving faith. I referenced 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Many people don't believe me. You think you can find very, very smart people who deny Jesus is the Christ, but they still know the Bible. That's not true. That is not true. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16. The, the, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, without faith, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible to know God, to know God's word. Without faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible is a closed book because the person themselves are dead in their sins and trespasses. And so the unbeliever has no real ability to judge truth, right and wrong, certainly to judge Christ, though they do. And the unbeliever has no real spiritual ability to judge the believer in Christ as right and wrong. But here's what we learn principally. They do all the time. Jesus was on trial before a bunch of Christ-hating, Christ-denying, God-hating, sin-loving Jews. And then he went from his ecclesiastical trial to his civil or state trial, and he's on trial before what kind of person? A God-hater, a sin-lover, a tool of the devil. And they're judging Jesus, Pontius Pilate. Beloved, just because we're in the right in Christ... Just because Stephen rightly presents the Bible, it says, I'm teaching orthodoxy. You, 
It doesn't mean that we won't be condemned as being in the wrong. That's what the devil does. Look around in our society. Our society calls what God says is obnoxious, they say is right. What God says is right and holy, namely Christ, they hate. This is how the devil works. And and this is here in part so that we would prepare ourselves to gird our loins. How will we be treated in this anti-Christ society? If we present the truth, we think, then people will love us and they won't be opposed to us. It's just the opposite. The more we love Christ, the more we live for Christ, the more faithful to the Bible we are, the more we'll be opposed. And I would argue, in the church and out of the church, sad to say, because faith is precious, because it's so rare. And so Stephen is presenting his case. And back to criticizing Stephen in his speech. People look at the Mona Lisa and they say, oh, look at the Mona Lisa. You know, it looks like a kid drew it or something like that. When you criticize, Mo- you criticize the Mozart's music. If a, if a person criticizes Mozart's music or Michelangelo, what do they reveal about themselves? They don't know a thing. So when Shaw says, this is just mumbo jumbo, these particular words that Stephen preaches as he flies over redemptive history Ultimately, they're not his words. Ultimately, whose words are they being recorded in the Bible? They're God the Holy Spirit's words. Beloved, I'm going to say this. It's always a bad idea to criticize the Holy Spirit as wrong. It's always a bad idea to look at the Bible and go, I don't believe that. I preached a sermon many, many, many years ago. If I've been here 21 years, maybe 18 years ago. And it was in Luke chapter 6. And Jesus says, love your enemies. And I went to do a pastoral visit at the person's house because they hated that sermon. And they wanted to, so I would come to the house so they could critique me freely. And so I came to the house and they said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I didn't write it, I promise. And I get that we don't want to love our enemies. I get what our flesh wants to do. You hate me, I hate you. That's how the flesh works. Jesus says, love your enemies. And so when you say, Pastor John, that's stupid, what is it telling me? You don't read your Bible. (laughs) There are lots of things in the Bible that rub our flesh the wrong way, right? And what does it show? That we need sanctifying or justifying. (laughs) All men have one or two problems. They're not justified or they're justified and they need sanctifying. So when someone says, well, this doesn't, this is, I don't agree with that. It, it either shows you have a justification problem or you have a sanctification problem. Either you're unconverted, you need converting, or you're converting and you need conformity to the image of Jesus. Jesus says our whole life should be lived according to what? What does the Bible say? When someone says, well, what do you think about lady preachers? Why well, I, I don't think lady should be preachers. Why not? Well, because you're a misogynist. You're in a time warp and you don't... No, I love women. I love my wife and my daughter and my mom. <laughs> because the, I think the Bible says, well, I think I can, I can cut and paste. I understand you can cut and paste. But we are to submit ourselves to the word of God, which is what Stephen's doing. He's on trial before his, for his life. And what does he use? The Bible. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit to the Bible. And he's before men that supposedly are the leaders of true true religion, but they will not submit to the Bible. And they prove it by killing the messenger 
of the word. Now, let, I, what, I, I want to spend some time, we probably won't unpack like even a fraction of the, of the, of the content, but I want to look at the manner of his defense because I've been alluding to the fact that he's using the Bible and it's an overview of redemptive history. But I want to look first at the manner of his defense. The priest says, are these things so? Are these charges so? And then look at verse 2, how, what he refers to these men as. He refers to them as brothers and fathers. Does he not? Yes. Hear me, brothers and fathers. And then as he goes throughout the, the passage, he repeatedly refers to our fathers, brothers, our fathers. Again, redemptive history, a Jew speaking to Jews. I'm going to argue that not only should we be biblical in our content when we defend Christ before an anti-Christ world, in this case before an anti-Christ visible household or faith church, um, we, we should be biblical and Christ-like in the way in which we share the content. And I do, perhaps I'll just spend the rest of the time on that and we'll see what we can get in, in future sermons. What, what do I mean by that? Are these things so? Are these charges so? Hear me, brothers and fathers. This represents, as I say, his defense. And make no mistake about it. He is defending himself. In this presentation, in this trial, he is the, the innocent party being accused of being the guilty party. And he, he's being attacked spiritually. He's being attacked verbally. Later, he's going to be attacked physically. And I, I want to say this. It's not wrong to defend your faith in Jesus before an anti-Jesus world. I know sometimes people are like, just be quiet and keep your faith in Jesus at the house. Or they'll quote Peter, which of course I agree with Peter. When people ask you to, what's the hope that you have within you, then make your defense. Of course. If someone comes and says, hey, I see that you're a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Of course. But remember what Stephen is. He's just not a finger or an arm or a foot of the church. He's a preacher. Remember what, what God says in the book of Isaiah about a sheepdog? If you buy a sheepdog and that sheepdog is there to start barking when the wolf comes near the sheep and the, and the, the sheepdog sitting there having a cigarette or he's mute, what, what do you think about that sheepdog? I'm going to get rid of that sheepdog because he's not doing the function for which I've called him. So if I can make application, if you sell Avon lipsticks, I know I'm dating myself, and you don't feel led to be profuse with your sharing the gospel, that's you. If you're a preacher and you say, no, 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 don't feel like sharing it today, <laughs> but you need to get another calling because you're a mouthpiece. And it's, it's required of the preacher. That it, the Apostle Paul says, I have been appointed for the defense of the gospel. He's a walking, talking gospeler. And Jesus puts this man in a, in a position to be a walking, talking gospeler. So it's not, it's not anti-Bible to defend your faith. And why do I say that? Now, we can do it in an obnoxious way. I, I understand. But I will say this. You could share Jesus or defend your faith with 50 gallons of corn syrup. And you're still going to be accused of being bitter-spirited, mean, vitriolic, pugnacious, all of those things, right? Y'all are just making fights. Y'all are just picking. Y'all are just being bitter. Jesus is the Lamb of Glory who wouldn't break a bruised reed and who wasn't yelling in the streets 
but he was accused of doing wrong. So when you're accused of doing wrong, like Stephen, it doesn't mean that you are doing wrong. So when you defend the faith, get ready. They're going to say, you're so narrow. You're so mean. You did it so meanly. You could be crying like a bowl of jello. And people are still going to accuse you of being bitter spirited. But defending the faith is not wrong. Is right. It is right. Jesus says to preachers, I'm going to send you out as sheep to wolves. And when they arrest you, when they haul you before the Sanhedrin, when they hauled you before Pontius Pilate, or before Caesar, then you make a defense. Why do you preach Christ? I'll tell you why I preach Christ. And he flies over the Bible. And at the end of that, they're going to put their hands over their head and they're going to say, away with you. But even that testifies. Even that defends. Now, why do I say his manner should be studied? He calls them brothers and fathers. He calls them brothers and fathers. He does so for one, a couple of reasons. The first reason is because he's a Jew speaking to Jews. These are fellow Jews. And heretofore, we're right at that crux between the gospel being contained within the people of Israel to where it goes out to the four corners of the earth. This is, the book of Acts is about the, 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 the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go to all the nations. Acts 1, 8, from Judea to all the nations. We're right here. From, from chapter 8, it's going to go to all the nations. As soon as they kill Stephen, it's going to all the nations. We're right there. So, But we're still in that time period where the Jews were the only people that were the called people of God. They're, they're the visible household of faith. So he says to these Jews, I'm a fellow Jew. You are Jews. I love you. We have the oracles and the ordinances of God. We have the word. We have the sacrament. We have the law. We have the gospel. Us, us, us. I'm your brother. You're my father. And so, and, and as he weaves redemptive history, he puts those phrases in there. He wants these people to stop and to understand what makes us brothers. What makes us sisters? What makes you my son? What makes me your father? Romans 3, 1 through 3. It's the oracles of God. It's God. It's the word of God. It's God who chose. It's the grace of God. It's the forgiveness of God and the Christ of God that's typified in the old tabernacle and temple sacrifices. That what, that's what makes the Jews the, the forgiven people of God. It's the mercy seat the blood that covers the mercy seat. He wants his judges to go through redemptive history and understand why are we the people of God? By God's grace. By the blood that makes remission of sin. So that's one of the reasons why he uses this phraseology, brothers and fathers. And another is, it's because he's obeying the fifth commandment. Remember, they're accusing Stephen of being a rabble rouser. He's anti-authority. Who is this lunatic coming and preaching this new thing, Jesus as the Christ, and he doesn't believe Moses, he's doing away with all uh, authority. He's not anti-authority. The fifth commandment, if I ask you, what's the fifth commandment? What's the fifth commandment? Honor your what? Father and mother. Honor your father and your mother. The fifth commandment, the commandments deal with the sanctity of things, the holiness of things, the sanctity of God, the sanctity of God's, uh, God's worship, too, the sanctity of God's uh, name three the sanctity of God's worship four the sanctity of human uh, authority the sanctity of human life the, the sanctity of sexuality uh, sexual expression those kind of things seventh the sanctity of personal property and so on 
And so what he is doing here is in his manner, in his tone, in his being deferential and respectful, he shows that he's walking by the Spirit. He's not a rabble rouser. He's not sowing to the flesh. He's honoring his fathers in the faith. The fifth commandment, the way that we understand it, the father and the mother obviously is indicative of our natural dads and our natural moms, but it also speaks to other things. And I'm going to read from our secondary standard. Um, This is from our larger catechism. What is meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but, but listen to this. All superiors in age, gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in a place of authority. Listen to this. Whether in the family, in the church, or in the commonwealth. This is what Stephen's preaching the Bible. The Bible says, the Bible says, Moses preached Christ, Joseph's a type of Christ, Abraham is... In Abraham's seed, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. King David's son and King David's Lord, he is the Christ. Jesus is the greater than Solomon. But the way that he does this Bible preaching is with, is with respect and deference. And remember the guys that he's giving respect and deference to. They're liars. These guys are scallywags. They're not nice people. They're wicked sinners who mean to murder him. And they're unbelievers. And yet he's still what to them? Oh boy. Oh, what lessons we need. I don't even want to be here in 2024. We don't believe in the secret rapture. But I want the secret rapture to happen before 2024. Because I already know what's going to happen. When we go through the next political season, I know what's going to happen. Whatever the left does, the left does. But I know what the right (laughs) does. We are not going to be winsome, respectful, kind, gentle. And that's a bad witness. I believe what Stephen is doing, he is testifying that he knows Christ, loves Christ, preaches Christ according to the Bible, just like all of those patriarchs and prophets in his Christ-like life. People believe our lives People believe our doctrine as they look at our life. If you say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, that stupid president, he's not my president, or whatever the guy, whatever president it may be. And when we are disrespectful and dishonoring of people in authority, we're breaking the fifth commandment. And it's a bad witness. And then you think you're going to go around and tell people, Jesus is the Christ, you should repent of your sins and believe in him. That stupid such and so, that idiot such and so. It's not according to the Bible. It's not according to the Bible. When we are respectful to people, and, he, and here's the difficult part. Is this high priest an honorable guy? No, he's a scallywag. These other 70 guys, are they honorable guys, respectful guys? No, they're lion murderers. And what does he call them? Fathers and brothers. I'm going to read something, and then I'll probably quit because I've probably got everybody in the room mad. I'm going to read some stuff from the Bible because I know we just we don't we don't honor the people that we are supposed to honor. Not our moms, not our dads. My my mom and dad were drunks. My mom and dad were this, so I don't honor them. Um, the the pastor can't 
he does, he's stupid, so I don't honor him. The president, he, but whatever, I don't honor him. Beloved, it's not Bible. It's not Bible. Listen to this. This is Leviticus 19. This is what Stephen's doing. Stephen's showing, I'm walking by the Spirit. Jesus is the Christ. And he, it, it's when you believe in Jesus that you can, even in measure, obey the Bible. Try obeying the Bible as an unbeliever. Good luck with that, as John Calvin liked to say. It's not going to happen. Leviticus 19.32. This is what Stephen's doing. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. So when he says to the elders, fathers and brothers, he's rising before the aged. He's rising before these men in, in authority because God has told him to. Not because the men themselves are honorable. They're dishonorable. He speaks respectfully because God tells him to speak respectfully. Exodus 20, 2. You shall not curse God or curse a ruler of your people. Oh, boy. Hello. Someone turn to your neighbor and say, don't curse the president if you didn't vote for him and think he's a scallywag. Romans 13. I know no one's going to like this one. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Our flesh is inclined to speak to people like this. They're lying against him. He knows it and they know it. They're wicked, unbelieving sinners. When people abuse you unjustly, what's your fleshly inclination? I already know. Either verbal or physical abuse. Is it not? But it's not the response of the Holy Spirit and the soul of the believer. Stephen is being conformed to the image of Jesus. He's about to go to Jesus. The more that we're shaped into the image of Jesus, Paul says, it's not I who live, but it's the Spirit of Jesus who lives in me. Jesus is going to put us in a position where people in authority over us are going to abuse the stew out of us unjustly. And what's that going to provide? Now share my word and share it the way that I want you to share it. Meekly, gently, kindly, with love. Beloved, I... I, I, I I would argue, I would argue that rather than the vitriol, rather than the anger, rather than the, the banner waving, if we would share why we believe Jesus is the Christ from the Bible, I think Moses teaches Christ, I think Abraham teaches Christ, I think, I think the Bible says these things, that's why I believe, and we would do it like this, in a respectful kind, gentle manner. What a platform for the gospel, beloved. What a platform for the gospel. And this man will seal his life, his testimony with his life. Beloved, I just want to leave you with this. When you read the Bible, and I hope everybody in the room reads the Bible, when you read the Bible, do you find Christ? When you read the Bible, do you hear Christ, the words of Christ. Do you have a heart that's, I'm not just talking propositions about Jesus. I'm not talking just right things. His person, 
Do you know him? Do you see him? Is there loveliness in him? Is sin obnoxious to you because it hurts the heart of your Christ? And as as God gives you opportunity, do you witness for Christ? Both propositionally and with your life. To the extent that we're loving and kind and winsome and gentle, I think we bring glory and honor to Christ and his kingdom. To the extent that we're ugly and angry and bitter and mean-spirited, you might even say right things with the Bible, but it's not glorifying. Um, Just some lessons that we learned from Stephen. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.